This is the big ponder. Initially, I didn't want to come to Berlin because I knew it was behind the Iron Curtain, as they called it. I did have a choice whether to come here or to go to Japan, and I said I wanted to come to Germany. I don't even really know why. It was going to be my big adventure. I was getting out of Miami. Since the ninth grade, I was taking German in school, so I was ready to use it. <laughs> I wasn't the normal run-of-the-day GI, put it that way. Ron Williams, Rick Pomerantz, Felicia Peters, Eb Davis, they are just four of the hundreds of thousands of American GIs who were deployed to Germany during the Cold War. They were stationed across West Germany, arriving over the span of about three decades. We had everything that you could dream of over here, but it was never in the big picture. Uh, it was always just for the Americans. This is John Provan, a historian and the son of an Air Force Chief Master Sergeant. He may sound American, but John has spent practically his entire life away from the United States. My, my knowledge, my experience, and my background of the United States is strictly that what I experienced in Little America. In this episode of The Big Ponder, we talk with Americans who came across the Atlantic with the military, but decided to stay and make Germany their home. We'll give you snapshots of these GIs' lives then and now. We'll talk with an entertainer, a musician-turned-caretaker, the owner of Germany's first car pawn shop, and a blues ambassador, whose music we hear now. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. And I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. By the time our interviewees arrived in Europe, Germany was a divided country. And during the Cold War, U.S. troops were stationed in more than 200 military installations in Western Germany. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and German reunification the following year, installations gradually closed down. The number of troops shrank. These days, there are fewer than 36,000 active soldiers stationed in Germany. But at the height of the Cold War, there were hundreds of thousands of GIs with their families living here. And they could essentially live like they did back in the States, in communities called Little Americas. The historian John Provan, who calls himself an Air Force brat, spent pretty much his entire childhood in Little America. This is how he describes it. Basically, everything that you could want to do, be it bowling, movie theaters, wood shops, car shops, repairs, you name it, it was all on, on the installation, so you never had to really leave your housing area or whatever to see the local German community. Everything they needed was available in English. Films, books, newspapers. In fact, the only reason John had to leave the base to go downtown was when he couldn't get what he needed at the PX, or post-exchange. The PX is where you buy your, your clothing, all the products that you need, you know, shoes, picnic stuff, everything that you would normally find, say, in a Walmart. And the commissary was the facility where that was strictly food. That is, any product, meat, potatoes, fruits, vegetables, you name it, that was all uh, available in our commissary. With the unique aspect that it was all American products, all in ounces, 
all with legible, you know, descriptions in English as to where it came from. And in fact, our bread that is, you know, the, the American loaf of bread that we like to smunch up, that was produced in a bakery that was run by GIs for the military in Grunstadt. And excuse me, this single bakery produced all the, the, the hamburger buns, the hot dog buns, bread, ice cream, cakes, cookies. They had almost a thousand people working. It was a huge, huge bakery, okay? And they supplied all the GIs in all of Europe. These military installations were designed to make Americans feel at home. They were sort of like bubbles, both independent from the surrounding German community and removed from many of the day-to-day worries facing Americans back at home. We only had the positive side. I mean, what could go wrong in the bubble? You didn't have poverty because everybody was employed by the military. Everybody could make do. You had housing. Base housing was free. could use all the water and electricity you wanted because it was all paid for by the military. So a lot of the little problems that you had, that you would have had as a civilian, you know, you didn't have with the military. But not all GIs lived in these bubbles, these little Americas, by choice or depending on their assignment. The full name is Eberly, but... Everybody know me as Eb. Eb came to Berlin in the early 1980s. He was part of a highly secretive unit called the U.S. Military Liaison Mission. Uh, we were a unit that had our, you know, we were a small unit, and we had our own places to live. We put it like that. But not living on a base wasn't the only unusual aspect of Eb's experience as a GI in Germany. There was also this. By day, we, uh, we were doing, the, doing our military assignments. And by night, playing the music. And we played the music all over it. For the first time you left me, all I could do was cry. For the second time you left me, I thought that I would die. Ebb was no stranger to the stage. By the time he came over to Germany, this Arkansas-born blues musician had already made a name for himself touring in the United States with his group, the Soul Groovers. Initially, I didn't want to come to Berlin because I knew it was behind the Iron Curtain, as they called it, divided city, little island, surrounded by a wall and and thousands of um, Soviet troops. I said, well, why would I want to go there? But... Being a soldier, it was not my choice as to where I wanted to go. So being a musician, what did you actually know about Berlin's music scene before the military then stationed you here? Ah, before I moved to Berlin, um, I, I knew they had a, a, a thriving jazz scene, but they had, no, they had no, no real blues scene. Still don't. They have a lot of fantastic blues musicians but not, not a blue scene per se. At the time, Ebb didn't have any grand vision of pursuing music, but it wasn't long before he made his way back to the blues. For the most part in the 1980s, Ebb performed in West Berlin, but as his reputation grew, he was invited behind the Iron Curtain and asked to play in East Germany too. You had to have a special permission from both sides that you could cross over the border. 
and most musicians couldn't get those special permissions. So they chose the people who had the right qualifications and clearances and, and the need to know and so on and so forth. In his private life, Ebb was and still is a quiet person. He says he likes to listen more than he likes to talk. But when he steps on stage, everything shifts. In 2008, Ebb was inducted as a Blues Hall of Fame ambassador to the state of Arkansas. I just love to sing the blues. The biggest responsibility is wherever you go on the planet to try and show and prove that this is a true, true American art form. Born, bred, and nurtured by people with my pigmentary persuasion. And it's um, much more of a positive music than people might think. You know, you say, okay, this is blues, it's down, it's depressing, and all of that stuff, but that's not, that's not true. The blues has everything in it, starting with A and ending with Z. And then if that's not enough, you add a few more Zs to it to make it a little bit longer. And the Zs don't mean sleeping. Berlin may not have been the place Eb Davis wanted to be stationed, but over time, it became the place he chose to call home. Ron Williams is also an entertainer through and through. He was born in 1942 in Oakland, California. Ron joined the U.S. Army as a teenager. After some military training in Georgia and Virginia, he was sent to Germany in the early 60s. He was just 19 years old when he arrived in northwestern Germany to Bremerhaven. After his time serving in the military, Ron began building a career as a musician, radio and TV host, actor and voiceover artist in German-speaking Europe. But let's go back to when it all started. So when I got to Bremerhaven on the boat and landed there and came down to Stuttgart by train, I realized that I was in a country that had gone through a pretty ugly phase in its history and that it was recovering from that and going through this this rebuilding of a democratic society and trying to get over its Nazi past. So uh, I was aware that it wouldn't be easy in Germany being a black person. And uh, I was trained as a military policeman. I was retrained as a journalist, a print journalist, and a radio announcer. So when I got to Stuttgart, I was with AFN Stuttgart. That's the American Forces Network. And I was a print journalist writing for Stars and Stripes, the American uh, Army newspaper. I um, wasn't the kind of GI who stayed in the barracks and, uh, you know, played pool and went to the movies and stuff. I was out on my Vespa. <laughs> I had a Vespa. Uh, and I would ride downtown to Stuttgart and check out the um, cultural, the opera, the theater, castles, palaces. I wasn't the normal run-of-the-day GI, put it that way. So you were really driven to meet Germans and to get to know them. And you were stationed in the southwest region in Germany, in Stuttgart. So how did you meet people there? I mean, did you go to pubs? And, and how did you pick up the language? 
So I was asking questions. I would hang out in Gastetten and talk to the Swabian old folks and young folks. And that's how I got to know Germans and I got to speak the language. I never learned German. I never studied it. I never took lessons. I just have a very musical, we call it a musical ear. And I picked it up pretty quickly. Picked up the dialect, Swabian dialect, wie the Germans say. And I started to get to know Germans better than I think most American GIs at the time could do. So that was my my key to success was being inquisitive, wanting to know things, asking questions, sticking my nose into people's you know histories and asking them, why did you do this and why did you do that? And so I was lucky. So when did you actually decide to stay in Germany? You were in the military for a couple of years and then things started to shift. I read that you were the first African-American cabaret artist in Germany. How did it happen? Being that first political cabaretist is a political cabaret, not a cabaret as in the, the movie Cabaret. <laughs> it was a political literary satire company in Stuttgart, uh, this Kleiner in the 10th Theater. Uh, becoming a member of that group And then going to Berlin and, 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 and being a guest twice with a famous Berlin uh, satire company called uh, Stackelschweine and meeting very famous German uh, cabaret artists. And here's this young black American former GI in the company with these uh, guys from Stuttgart, the company, the Renitenz Theater, twice in Berlin with very successful runs there. And I got yeah, hooked by the fact that This country, Germany, even though it had gone through this horrible 12 years and had recovered, and the new Germany becoming a democratic society, it was exciting for me to say, look, it, maybe it's more fun to see if I can make some uh, marks here in this country than going back to the States, where the struggle with racism was so intense as it is today still, as we know, that if you're political as a black person in the States, The chances of you getting somewhere is not that great. You 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 would suffer uh, a lot of handicaps and pushback because the country is so racist. I'm sad to say, and we know that in, in Sweden, we know that now. But in those days, it was even harder than today. It's much easier, but in those days, it was very hard. So I said, why not? You know, hang around in Germany for a year because in those days you could go back after a year if you wanted to. The military paid your flight back. So I said, okay, I'll hang around for a year and see if it's worth staying, which I did. And I was lucky and I got uh, slowly, I started getting a foothold as a singer and as a performer. And slowly I liked the taste of being a, a black American that, that had the chance to, how can I say it? Um, there was no one who was politically or let's say, um, who's edgy. And, and, and I saw the chance of being an edgy performer, someone who could talk about racism, talk about politics, what Germany's role would be with, uh, in its American-German friendship. Those are themes that, uh, that interest me. So I stayed, and I've been lucky and blessed. Ron has entertained German audiences for more than 50 years. Stand by me. Sing a song. He loves making people laugh, and he always promotes respect and tolerance. In 2004, he received the Bundesverdienstkreuz, the Federal Cross of Merit, for his work combating racism. 
This is something I've been doing since I came to Germany. I've been trying to make this theme uh, to talk about what is racism and why it's something we all have to deal with or we should be dealing with it every day and calling it out when we uh, have a chance to do so, regardless if it's in private life or in your work life or wherever, because it's the ugliest thing that a society can allow to uh, be part of its everyday life is racism. You know... When I have an audience, whether it's, it doesn't matter if it's a theater play or a concert, I try to always close the show with uh, something, a comment or a song that talks about that problem. I love being on the stage. I love having people in front of me and have them smiling or frowning or crying or reacting. That's my life. It's the blood of my life, and I, and I love doing it. They said it was impossible Love to lead the way. The song is from a musical about Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, which Ron both wrote and starred in. It premiered in 2007 at the Kaiser Wilhelm Gedächtniskirche, the Berlin Memorial Church. Since the late 60s, Ron Williams has called the Bavarian capital Munich his home base. I did have a choice whether to come here or to go to Japan. And I said I wanted to come to Germany. I don't even really know why. Felicia Peters arrived in 1985. She worked as a motion picture specialist, which means she mainly documented military events and exercises. Her work took her to different bases across West Germany. I was sent to Darby Kaserne in Fürth. And I, had a, I was sent there for a couple of weeks to do a project. And I was on post and I met a German guy who said that I looked nice. And I said, you look nice too. And then we met him and then we fell in love. And then I got together with him and I ended up marrying him. Love was a main reason to stay in Germany. And although the two ladies split ways, Felicia never doubted her decision to forge a new life in Bavaria. The fact is, the point of the matter is, is that, you know, I joined the army when I was 18. I was just basically getting into adulthood. And so my entire childhood, I spent at home with my mom and, and, and my sisters, and I left directly from there to go to the military. And so if I went back to the United States, I would have to have started a brand new life anyway. It's not like I could go back to my family and go back to everything. I was a young adult, a very young adult when I left, and I would have had to start everything new. So actually, after being four years in the military and two years here in Germany, I basically, as being an adult person, knew more about how to be an adult in Germany than I did in America. The area where she now lives was home to several prominent U.S. Army barracks, which gradually started shutting down in the 90s. Her little America has disappeared, and most of her military friends are back in the States. Almost all of them are gone. The only one that I always still see all the time is <laughs> a guy that works for DHL. <laughs> he delivers my packages to me. And he's the only American that I still see on a, on a continual basis because he's here every second day. Every time I get a package, he's here. And so we start talking about the old times. Other than that, I don't have that much contact except online. Every once in a while, I'll write some of my old friends from back then online. But we don't have the, the contact that we had before because there are just so f too few of us here. 
the 56-year-old still maintains a connection to the U.S. In 2008, she returned while on vacation to volunteer for Barack Obama's presidential campaign. She even met him. So I was at his speech and I heard him speak and I ended up actually <laughs> shaking his hand and, and talking to him. And he, I told him I came 5,000 miles from Germany to see him. And he said, are you serving over there? And I said, yes, pizza and hot dogs and stuff, because at the time I wasn't in the army anymore. And then he said, well, keep up the good job. And that was it. Felicia has worked many different jobs, but music is what has sustained her for the past 22 years. She was coaching children, playing live events, and then the pandemic hit. And all of that wasn't an option anymore. And so I decided right away, immediately, to do something to make myself useful and to try to, to work and to be a caretaker. You know, help people get ready for lunch and dinner and help clean them up. And I talk to them and sing to them. That's, that's my own thing. <laughs> and um, uh, the reason why I picked this job is because I have always cared for older people and always cared for people on my own, on the side that couldn't help themselves. There, in my neighborhood here, I cared for four different people until they died, actually. Felicia Peters has been living in Fürth in northern Bavaria for more than 30 years. She's learned the language and she's active in her community. But inside her apartment, photos of her and her American friends decorate the walls. That's where she keeps alive the memories of the little America she once lived in. It was Cold War times, but there really was no real aggression going on. This is Rick Pomerantz. He came to Germany in 1972. I ran into a lot of guys here. They were coming back. They were being restationed here from Vietnam. It was the end of the Vietnam War, so I never went there. I was only here in Germany. So a lot of guys were coming back here. So it was more of a sort of relaxed atmosphere. They were just trying to chill out. Before coming to Europe, Rick was studying history in Miami. But he was getting bored. So moving to Germany seemed like a great adventure. The now 69-year-old remembers those times vividly. We had maneuver rights here in Bavaria, and we could just drive out the back gate and drive around for three or four days, maneuvering around, map reading and doing all those type of exercises. We were everywhere, and we had a lot of privileges, so to speak, or more rights back then than they do today. In the evenings, we would go downtown and... Uh, have our first schnitzels, at least for me, it was my first schnitzel. <laughs> schnitzel and beer downtown. And uh, every once in a while, though, we would get in, into trouble and there would be a big rumble with the locals. Somebody would, you know, make somebody else mad and one thing would lead to another. Back then, there were lots of old World War II veterans and they were in the Ritzhauer's house and, you know, in the guest houses. It was great listening to their stories. Some of them were on U-boats and captured. Some were on the East Front. So I, I love listening to all those stories. Another thing he loved was cars. And there was a huge demand among GIs. Rick says anyone not living in the barracks wanted one. So he started tracking down used cars as a side hustle. But then when I had one car and made good money on it, then it just led to a second and then a third and a fourth. And it just one thing is just kept spiraling. And guys would be calling me on the phone all the time, asking me to help them out find the car. So it just, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And it got so big, after two years of doing this, while I was still doing my army job and going, going on maneuvers and all that kind of stuff and trying to do both, that I just had to make the decision that after 10 years, I had to leave the army, stay in Germany and run, and run the used car business. 
That's how his business started. But after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when American troops started leaving the area, Rick says most of his customers were suddenly gone too. Competing with German car dealerships wasn't an option. He had to do something to stand out. After a while, I just somehow came to the idea of uh, starting a pawn shop for cars. And that's what I did. And, and when I started that, nobody was doing that over here. And the press got a hold of it. And one magazine did a story on me. And after that story, cars started coming from all over Germany. Rick remembers his very first customer was a man who needed money to bail his son out of jail. He needed something like 2,000 or 3,000 marks, the currency at the time. So Rick made it happen. All these many years later, he says everyone knows him. He's a real part of the community. My face is on, on buses driving around town and it's, you know, let's go down and see Rick. You know, so it's almost a little bit like a barbershop here. You know, you talk to your barber and you tell him your stories, what's going on with your family, your kids. So we get the same thing here. So that it's always interesting. It's always something new every day. Rick Pomeranz found the adventure he was looking for. And he gets a kick out of thinking back to those early days as a new GI in Germany. <laughs> that was the very first thing we did, though. German beer, we had to go downtown and have a beer. And then it was 3.30 in the morning, the next thing I know, and it was, the sun was already up shining, and, and holy moly. <laughs> this is a long time ago now. Thanks for the memories. The fond memories, a little nostalgia, that's something historian John Provan says comes up when he talks with former GIs stationed in Germany during that time. Irregardless of where they were stationed, and I mean, some of the places we had here were not, were not nice assignments, okay? But uh, what I've discovered is when you start talking to them, they remember their years in Germany as being the best years of their life. But in John's case, even all these years later, Little America is never far away. Not only did he live in one of these communities, he's been preserving the history of them for decades now. Back when U.S. military installations started shutting down, he went from base to base, saving as much as he could. In the end, he's rescued thousands of records and hundreds of thousands of photos. His efforts fill up three basements and a bunker. These days, he is still working on digitizing the whole collection. Negatives are basically finished, thank God. That was one huge project. That took eight years, just to give you an idea, with two scanners working around the clock. First thing I did in the morning and the last thing I did at night was to feed the machine, and it took three hours basically to do a roll of film. John estimates he is halfway through with sorting all the material, which means there's still about 20 years left to go. It is a daunting task, but John knows that he is uniquely suited to do it. After all, he knows the material he's archiving, inside and out. And he loves doing it. Most historians go through their entire career doing nothing but dusting off old records and, and books, okay? And rewriting something that has been written a thousand times as is. And that was not, how should I say, not my purpose in life. I'm going to be one of the few historians that leaves something behind so that future historians can dust off all the papers that I'm leaving behind to figure out, you know, what life was like here.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Big Ponder. You heard interviews with John Provan, Rick Pomerantz, Felicia Peters, Ron Williams, and Eb Davis. The music was from Eb Davis and the Superband, Ron Williams, and Jonathan Kroll. In Berlin for The Big Ponder, I'm Sylvia Cunningham. And I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. You've been listening to The Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin-Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the Big Pond that make this series possible. <laughs>